Um, this morning, though, we're going to talk about communication. Stuart Scott, helpful little booklet, and I bring these from time to time just to encourage you if you're looking for books on certain topics. This is a real thin one, but it's full of good stuff. Communication and conflict resolution. And Stuart Scott speaks in there about how Christian communication is extremely important to God. And he says this, communication involves ruling our spirit, our tongue, and our body, and going against our feelings when they contradict what we know to be true. Communication involves the heart, which is of the greatest importance to God. Know that because Jesus said that. Jesus spoke of the connection between the heart and speech on a number of occasions. In Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, 18, Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. The lesson is, we say things because we think those things, because we believe those things. We don't just randomly say them. They are part of what we are, are mulling over and what we are thinking about. And so if my response to a difficult situation is impatience and anger, it's not just because the situation is upsetting. It's also because in my heart I'm impatient and angry. It's because those are the things that are welling up, and so those are the words then that come out of my mouth. Uh, in the same way, if I, if I lie to avoid painful consequences, if I lie thinking that somehow I can get some sort of, uh, of, of pass on this, it's because my heart is, is desiring that by doing this, I can maybe get away from avoiding something I think will be painful. And so if I lie in this instance, maybe it'll get me out of this and I'll enjoy ease instead of pain. And of course, usually it catches up with us at some point. So how we communicate as believers in Jesus Christ must give evidence of how we imitate Jesus Christ. How we communicate demonstrates the living out of Christ in our life. And that's why we're spending a couple of Sundays here in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn there to Ephesians 4, looking at what God's Word says about communication. We sort of introduced this last week with kind of a broad sweep from Ephesians 4.17 down through 5.2. Take a little smaller part of that same piece this morning. But last week what we looked at was resources that God has given us to equip us to communicate graciously, what God has provided for us to enable us to do this, and also resources that, that demolish the temptation to treat ungracious communication like it's just who we are. That is so often the temptation when it comes to poor speech, angry speech, lying, whatever it might be, the, the temptation is to act as if we can't change. This is sort of my personality. My father was loud, and so I'm loud. My mother avoided difficult subjects, and so I avoid difficult subjects. I'm surrounded by people who use filthy language, and so I absorb that, and I use filthy language. And, and the, the point that we saw last week in Ephesians is God has shattered those excuses in the lives of his people by saying, no, I have... I have equipped you so that you can be different, so that you can speak different, so that you can disagree different, so that you can handle stresses and, and hard situations differently than unbelievers do. 
And so let me just, if you had a chance to listen to the sermon last week, you're here last week, this is just review, but let me just mention those resources. There were seven of them we looked at last week and just set these as sort of foundation for what we look at today. The first one was God has given us a mandate to no longer communicate as unbelievers do. And he says in verse 17, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You are to be different. You have been commanded that you are now a different person, so you must no longer act, speak Think the ways that you did, it must be changed. God has given us hope to communicate graciously. We saw down in verse 23 where it's this renewing work of his spirit. God's spirit is actually living in us and working in us to transform our desires, our affections, so that we have greater distaste for those old ways and we long for the ways of Christ. And so we have a hope that we can communicate graciously. The third thing was he's given us a new reality by making us new creatures in Christ. He speaks of in verse 24, in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The, the, the gracious communication that we see in this passage is not to be the exception. It is to be the norm because of who we are in Christ, because we are new creatures made in the likeness of God. The fourth thing we looked at last week was just the incentive that he has given us in verse 25 when he says, not only are you members of a body we tend to think of, but he actually says in verse 25, you are members of what? One another. You are joined together. There's an interdependence about what you do, and so your communication should reflect that mutual dependence on one another. We looked at some of the warnings that this passage gives. That was the fifth thing, the warning of cooperating with Satan, giving Satan a foothold, he speaks of in verses 26 and 27. And then down in verse 30, grieving the Holy Spirit by using the gift of speech and communication to harm instead of to serve others. The sixth thing we looked at last week, the opportunity God has given us to minister grace to other people to actually give them grace through our words. We'll talk more about that one this morning in, in verse 29. And then the last one we talked about was he's given us the perfect model. We look at Jesus Christ and we see what he has called us to. We see one who was mocked and insulted and rejected and ultimately crucified and who did not revile back. And he gives to us the model of Christ from which we learn gracious communication. So those are the resources. How do we do this? Six things this morning, and I'm just going to do them in pairs from Ephesians chapter 4. Six qualities that should mark our speech as disciples of Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then the idea here is God is shaping your heart, transforming your heart so that the words that you speak and write and type and text, that those words should reflect more Christ-likeness. They should show truth. And love, they should show purpose and grace, and they should show kindness and tenderness, tenderheartedness. Truth and love, purpose and grace, kindness and tenderness. Before we look at those six qualities, all of them are framed by the same sort of model as he walks through these behavioral Christian living issues in Ephesians. Put off Put on, And he established the pattern for us already in the prior verses. And I just want to stop here for just a second because this put off, put on is so fundamental to our Christian living. It is how we are to engage when it comes to dealing with sinful struggles. It is 
based on this put off, put on that he has shown us. Back in verses 17 to 19, he has said, when you were without Christ, you were foolish, you were futile, you were darkened in your understanding, you were separated from God. He gives that, that picture of where we were, and then he gives this dramatic contrast in verse 20 when he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. As we think about the Christian life, as you think about yourself as you think about discipling others, those of you who are parents, as you think about training your children in these things, understanding this put off, put on that Paul is going to continue to rely on here is just so important and, and seeing it rooted in the gospel and the cross and salvation. In fact, Colossians, Paul says much the same thing, but slightly different wording in Colossians 3, 9, and 10. And again, the context is speech. He starts off in Colossians 3, 9 with saying, don't lie to one another. Seeing that, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Both in Colossians there and then verse 23, we saw it in Ephesians 4. He used being renewed both instances, it's the same kind of language. It's present tense. He's saying that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are constantly, regularly being renewed. God is working in you through this message, through the, the podcast you listen to on Tuesday, through your quiet time tomorrow morning, through whatever, all of those different means, through that brother or sister in Christ who speaks into your life. God is using that to shape you and to renew you and to change your desires and affections. But the put-off, put-on part, it's interesting because Ephesians makes it sound like it's a sort of ongoing thing. Colossians says, you have. And really what Paul allows us to see here is there's this already, not yet sense. There is the already sense in which at the moment you were saved, God in his grace transformed you. He took off the old self, the, the, the rebellious self that was bent against God. He took off that old worn out garment and dressed us in the righteousness of Christ. He now gives us new life. And so we already have put off and put on. And yet the language is also going to make it clear that that's, that's the model for living the Christian life. As we deal with sinful behaviors, it's going to be that same practice of saying, this is of the old. This needs to be put off like an old garment. This is, not what I, this is not what I should wear. This is not how I should speak. This is rather the garment in Christ. This is how my life should, should reflect Christ's likeness. And it's that constant putting off and putting on that is fundamental to the, the transformation of our behavior. At salvation, the old nature was put off and replaced by a new nature made in the likeness of Christ. Therefore, living the Christian life is an extension of that, of that put off, put on. So let me read this section starting in verse 25. We'll go down through verse 2 of chapter 5. As I said to you last week, not the most ideal chapter break. Those were added in later. Paul just wrote this as a complete letter, but let's go 425 down through 5.2. Therefore, and watch for the put off, put on, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see it over and over again. He's not just saying, like we might do, Here's the bad example. Here's the good example. It is that in a very simplistic sense. But what he's saying is this is what gets put off as believers, but we don't stop there. This is what gets put on in its place. The illustration in this passage that maybe is the simplest and clearest example of this is the one that doesn't have to do with communication. It's the thief in verse 28. You see the description of the thief? He is one who steals. And and Paul says, It's not just that he then stops stealing, and everyone says, good, he's not a thief anymore. He's he's stopped stealing. That's the put off, but he says the difference is what Christ does in his life is not only does he stop stealing, now he starts working with his hands. And whereas he used to take other people's stuff for himself, he now is taking from his own stuff, and he's giving it to other people. And so his point is just the stopping of it, laws do that. Laws tell us don't do that. Criminal punishment stops people from doing that. Fines, traffic tickets, right? They stop us from doing certain things. But what Christ does is he changes behavior so that then we begin to look like Christ. He becomes one who now is regarded as one who shares. This is so important for us as Christians. It wasn't enough for the thief to stop stealing. It's the putting on of the new behavior. And that is the epitome of what it is to follow after Jesus Christ as believers in Christ. We don't, we don't just stop old activities like, I'm not going to yell, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, whatever that might be. We're called to then put on Christ-like qualities in its place. And that's what we're going to see all throughout this passage. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great preacher in London during the middle of the 20th century, said, This is precisely the difference between Christianity and morality. Morality stops at the negative. It tells us, put off the old man. You must not do this. You must not do that. Then it is finished. That, in essence, is morality. That's what law is essentially based on, a moral code that says, don't do this. And if you do this, this is the punishment you can expect. Christianity, then, is a life that follows Jesus Christ and is not content to simply not do, but also called now what to do, to follow after Christ to, to reflect him, to grow and to live out that new nature. So that's what, that's what we're going to see in these six qualities. So to go back to the first set, it's in verses 25, 26. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Lying and hatred are symptoms of what we were apart from Christ. 
Lying and hatred are what he's describing here. Now, if you look at this and go, I don't, I don't see the word hate in this passage. I, I think you can go to the words of Jesus when it comes to this description of be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And you've got Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 21, saying, you've heard that it was said you shall not murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. The Greek word Jesus used for angry there is the same one that Paul uses in verse 26. The point is all based on the same, that if what comes flowing out of your mouth is angry words, it's because that's what's in your heart, because that's where it began with the angry intent that now gets spoken in words. Angry words, sinfully angry words, are not loving words. There's no sort of neutral, ambiguous middle ground between love and hate here that we like to imagine, which is, I, I am actively loving you even as I'm yelling at you and insulting you in some way. No, I am not actively loving you at that moment. I am actively loving myself. I am serving my purposes in that moment when I am venting on you. So I am not being loving toward you at that moment. So the old pattern of behavior is to put this off. Put off, he says, lying, having put away falsehood, and then he warns against this sinful anger. Be angry and do not sin, or in your anger, do not sin. Let's just, not quite as much a communication one, but let's get the question that we've all asked at one time or another in verse 26 is, so can I be angry and not sin? I, I think one of my favorite writers from years gone back, the counseling teacher, Jay Adams, answer to that always was, maybe you can, but I can't. Most of us struggle with that. You might be able to do so. It's not saying it's impossible, but it's hard. F.F. Bruce has a great quote on this. There is no doubt a proper place for righteous indignation. But there is a subtle temptation to regard my anger as righteous indignation and other people's anger as sheer bad temper. Isn't that right? I, I have righteous indignation. You're, you're being the fool in this. Interesting thing is Ephesians 4.26, when he says, be angry and do not sin, is quoting from David in Psalm 4. David in Psalm 4, the context seems to be that David was falsely accused in some way, that there were men who were somehow sinfully conspiring against David in some way. And so the, the reaction to that is appropriate in the sense of injustice. It, it, they are sinning against him, and, and we know that feeling when we are truly victimized by someone's wrongdoing, when we are treated unjustly, when someone does sin against us. But the interesting thing is David comes right back after Psalm 4.4, and then he says, verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. In other words, even in those moments when you have been sinned against, and, and those moments that maybe it may be absolutely right for you to lovingly respond with rebuke and correction, a loving response to the person, we still have to act out of faith and be like Christ. Even in those moments, he says, offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Even when they're, they're all ganging up around you and treating you wrong, you still can rest in the fact that God has for some reason put you in this circumstance right now for the, his glory and for the sake of your growth in his kingdom, and he is still going to equip you sufficiently.
to respond in that situation. We're still not justified. David was not in Psalm when the, in the Psalms when they were surrounding him and accusing him. We're still not justified in lashing out and taking what might be a sense of righteous indignation. This is wrong, this is sinful, and then turning that into sinful anger on our part and lashing back. All right, so let's, let's get to the put-ons. We've put off the falsehood and the sinful anger. The put-ons clearly are truth and love. These two are united back up in verse 15. He had just said back in 14 and 15, he says, don't, don't be tossed around by deceit, by, by sort of cunning winds and deceitful doctrines. Don't get tossed around, but rather, Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way in him who is the head into Christ. He joins truth and love. And I think it's important that we keep those two really close together because as as human beings who struggle with temptation, we have a real tendency to separate those two, to disconnect truth and love and to focus on one or the other. You know what I mean? The, the, the focus on truth is when we focus exclusively on, I know I'm right, <laughs> I, I, this is true, I can, I can point you to Bible verses that show you that I'm right, and so that's it, I'm right. And, and we're Big on truth, but are we loving? Are we actually serving that person in that moment? Or are we just trying to win for the sake of, of making the point? Yes, we should stand on truth. We should put off falsehood. We need to keep these two close together, speaking the truth in love. Because the, the flip side is the, the other wrong-headed notion that the most loving thing to do is to overlook truth and compromise truth and just accept everything and allow someone to, to go on to their own destruction and carry on in sin and not say something because it's loving to, to not get in their way, to not interfere with them in some way. Let them vent. Let them act out. Worse than that, it's to lie when they sin and say, oh, that's okay. It's, it's not a problem. We all make mistakes. Don't worry about it. Listen, we need to keep these two joined together, speaking truth, but doing so because we love the person, because we desire God's best for them. And so speaking it humbly and graciously as we communicate with them. Remember, this, this part about speaking the truth is tied right to that incentive in verse 25 of do this because, not because you are just members of a body, but because you are members of one another. And so that tells me right there that my motive in this is not to be the winner of the argument, to make the point that is irrefutable, ha-ha, I did it, but my point is to help us to grow together as a body to serve you in some way so that that, that interdependence is going on and that the, the person listening is, is gleaning gospel truth as, as I speak to them. And so that, that goes to our listening too. When a brother or sister in Christ is, is kind enough to come to you and to speak the truth to you about an area in your life and say, hey, I, I think I'm seeing this or I think I'm hearing this, then, then we need to also receive that truth in love. That, that they are calling us out of that interdependence to be like Christ and take that as the, the gift that it is. The devil traffics in lies. Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. Um, we are called to root our speech in loving, sacrificial truthfulness, active love for one another. Your love for me should translate into concern for my soul, for my ministry, 
for my fellowship with others, for my testimony to the world. Your love for me should encourage you to exhort me and to speak into my life um, because you want me to grow in Christ-likeness as you want the body to grow. That also means we don't give people false hope, false assurance. We don't just make things up and say comforting words because they seem just like the, the safe thing to say at that point. When we're, when we're the brother or sister in Christ who is going through a a terrible time and they are suffering. We don't, we don't have to be like Job and sit and try to, you know, be detectives and, and, and get necessarily down to guessing what sin has put them there. But, but if they're complaining and reacting poorly to that suffering, we also don't have to just sit there either and just act as if that's acceptable because we have a Savior who suffered, who was mocked, who was insulted, and who entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so that's an opportunity for us to serve that brother or sister by praying with them and encouraging them to see Christ, that God has put them in the middle of this situation. And as hard as it is, God is not abandoning them. They can trust him in this. We must love one another enough to speak truth Love one another enough that we don't respond in sinful anger, as verse 26 says. The world responds in kind. The world's attitude on these kind of things is you raise your voice, I apparently need to speak louder because I'm getting drowned out in this instance. You, you get angry, you call to mind something that I did two weeks ago, I'll call to mind something you did three weeks ago, right? That's the world's attitude is just respond in kind. We're going to go there, huh? All right, I'll show you. The, the, the world is repeatedly described, the, the fleshly behavior, Galatians speaks of it as well in terms of the, the fruits of the, of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. The world is marked by not having self-control. And so these kind of things, how many times have you talked to somebody who they've come out of a heated argument and you go, well, well how did it start? And they look at you with a blank stare like, I don't, don't actually remember how we got to where we got. It just went from there and it took off. It's just the world attitude that, that just draws us in and lack of self-control. We're called to speak the truth in love and to not yield to this sinful anger. James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's why we have to be slow to anger. That's why we have to be patient. You're gonna, that's going to keep coming out in these passages to just slow down. But let's look down at verse 29, the next one. We've looked at the thief already, so verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We must communicate with truth and love, and second, we must communicate with purpose and grace. The, cor the corrupting talk here is the obvious put on in this passage. You see it right from the beginning. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is helpful. He's, he's very clear here. This isn't just sort of degrees of, of, of talk. and no, Don't do some of this and do some of that. It's just none of this. Make sure you're focused on this. He's making it very absolute. No corrupt talk. The Greek word for corrupting is the idea of causing something to rot, the idea is that whatever it touches, it makes it worse. It's like a disease that infects those with whom it comes into contact. Ever had one of those days? It's like 7 o'clock, and you're coming in the door, and it has been a terrible day, and it has been lousy at work, and the boss has not exactly been gracious, and the traffic has been horrible, and you come in the door, and you are in a foul mood, and you want everyone to know 
by your demeanor, I am in a foul mood, don't talk to me. You talk to me and you're going to get it. Next person in line, Next, whether it's the kid, whether it's the spouse, or you're the one who's home with the kids and the kids have been driving you crazy and spouse comes home at the end of the day and you just want them to know, don't even talk to me. You have no idea, right? That's when we get caught in this corrupting talk. That saying things that, that do nothing to benefit, but rather infect instead. They rather bring harm to the people around us, lack of self-control. The, 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 for the unbelieving world, the thing that characterizes people without Christ, this lack of self-control, is, is largely resta- restrained by consequences or embarrassment. It's the superficial stuff is what grabs them. That's why they can, that's why they can be in the midst of a shouting argument in the house and then the phone rings and they can answer the phone and go, hello, how are you? And act like everything's fine because they don't want to be embarrassed. They're not going to carry that onto the phone to whoever's calling at that moment. We as believers in Jesus Christ, God's spirit is working with us to convict us, to change our desires, to give us a distaste for corrupting talk, for saying things in a way that are are just going to do nothing but harm at that moment. It's that time when we just need to be quiet if need be. The put on in verse 29, he says there to um, let no corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In the Greek, the phrase as fits the occasion is one word. It's a word that speaks of need or necessity. In fact, the root of the word actually goes back to a word in the Greek for debt. And and what it means when it says then as fits the occasion is it's, it's trying to meet a need in that person. Paul used this word when he talked about how he worked hard with his hands in order to meet his financial needs so that he would provide for himself. Or when he spoke of gifts that were given to supply for a need, he used the same word here that is translated as fits the occasion. And so the point of this in communication is I'm lacking something. I need something at this point. And you are speaking into my life in such a way that God is using you to speak truth to me. God is speaking that which fits the occasion, which is, which is sensitive to say, ah, what, where's this person at right now? What, what, would be, what would be most needful for them? If they are completely cranked about their boss, my jumping in and saying, yeah, your boss is ridiculous, probably isn't what they need at that moment. If I, if I simply ride along with them and just sort of encourage that, that's not helpful. As fits the occasion is what do they need at this moment? They need, they need to be encouraged in gospel truth at this point, that there is a loving Savior who has put them in the place of having a job with that boss, and they are the person that God is using perhaps in that boss's life in some way to at least get a glimpse Christ, whatever that is. I, it, the message to you and I, I think, is to use our words purposefully. They are tools. Ephesians 4.29 is a call to slow down and think about what I'm going to say. If I am going to say words that fit the occasion, I am I'm going to have to slow down. I worked in radio for a number of years. Did the, did the radio news guy thing, did the radio disc jockey thing of spinning the hits back in the day. And the thing you were not supposed to do was have dead air, right? It was just, it was, everything was supposed to be seamless so that there was a constant sound so that when somebody was driving along in their car, they didn't go, 
just thinking about this first service, I, and I was starting to turn the knob to change the station. That's, that's how old I am when it comes to radio. You know, why is there dead air? Why is there silence at this moment? You know, and that's just anathema to us to have that, that silence. And I think sometimes we do that when we get in sort of heated conversations where we feel like, i got to say the next thing. I'm already thinking while you're talking about what the next thing is. And that does us no good. That's why Scripture says be quick to listen, slow to speak. Allow time. One of the sweet graces that I enjoy as an elder here at Grace, particularly now that we've added multiple elders, is just the joyous privilege of, of learning to shut my mouth and listen, to, to, to glean godly wisdom from other men, to hear what they're saying and what God's putting on their hearts, and to, to, to learn from each other and to slow down and, and, and strive to say that which is helpful and purposeful. This fits the occasion. The last part of verse 29 says that it may give grace to those who hear. It's really purposeful. We talked about this last week. Simple definition of the, the Greek word for grace is charis. And let me just give you from out of a, a, a dictionary that's taking that word, that charis. I, I just think this is, might be helpful for you to picture what giving grace to one another looks like. A kindness granted, a benefit given, a favor done without expectation of return, the absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. That's what we're called to as we speak with one another, is striving to gift them with our speech. It is not giving them what we think they deserve in that moment, what we think they may have earned by their unkind words, thus getting a payback from us, but rather we are giving the benefit of the doubt. We are desiring that our words would actually be like gifts to them, like something they would actually long to receive. Do the people who, who hear you talk the most, are they eager to hear your words? Are they eager because your words come as gifts? Are they, are they eager to hear from you? Now listen, sometimes I, I, some, some of you guys are dealing in parenting situations and your kids aren't eager to hear from you and it has, you could be as gracious as you want and there is a sinful recipient on the other side. I, I get that. But the reality is we get caught sometimes and our words are not gifts. Are our words gracious? Are we seeking to minister grace in those times? Does your speech help them, serve them, supply something that's lacking? When you speak, are you more concerned about making your point or serving the person who's listening? If we're going to do the latter, it will take time. It will mean slowing down, not saying the first thing that comes to mind and thinking about how we serve them. Last one, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our words should increasingly be characterized by truth and love, purpose and grace, kindness and tenderness. Kindness and tenderness is the last one. The put off is pretty clear in this one. It, it, it just fills verse 31. Stop speaking this way. Let this not be part of who you are. Bitterness, anger, slander, malice. Don't use sharp, 
resentful speech. Don't use words as daggers. Clamor means out-of-control speech. It's when the whole discussion starts getting more and more elevated, and you're just adding to that out-of-control sense. Malice is hostile speech. It's when you're, you're using words specifically to hurt in those moments. That's not who we are as disciples of Christ, and that's why he's saying that, that shouldn't characterize you because your master didn't speak that way. Your master didn't communicate. Even when people were hostile to him and they rejected him, that's not how he spoke to them. Angry, selfish talk must continuously be being stripped off like an old, worn-out garment. It is who we were before Christ. And when we do it, that's when we ask for forgiveness. That's when we strip that off and we acknowledge what it is. We don't talk out of resentment and indignation. We shouldn't be abusive or raging. Here's the reality. Our culture has made rage to be a virtue. I mean, it's just the reality. Rage is a hashtag, right? Outrage. Because the mentality of the culture is just vent. Just give your peace and speak your truth and, and, and say what you want to say and, and express it. And somehow that's supposed to make everyone feel better in the process. It is, it is not unusual, and it is a sad reality that there are people who will identify themselves in their social media biographies specifically as followers of Jesus Christ, and they are in the midst of their posts doing exactly the things that Ephesians 4.29 forbids and says, this is not who you are supposed to be. Taking the attitude that because somebody's political view differs from mine now makes them as a person worthy of insult and mocking and malice is wrong. We are not called to that. This communication stuff is for all of our communication. This, this applies to our social media communication too. And so if you are finding that your experience on social media is just making you angry and isn't accomplishing much more than that, if you are finding that social media is leading you to believe that the only way I get my opinion heard is by insulting or mocking or being snarkier than the next guy, then maybe it's time to get off social media. Maybe it's time to say, I need a break from this. You know, God help me to, to think through if I can use this maybe as a tool, but if not, if, if, if I'm going to use it to flame people with sarcasm, then it's not worth it. Because that's not what our Savior did. That's what we're called to be different. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I, I, just to reaffirm to you, I am not speaking as one who masters this. I was involved in politics and did political communication for years and ran Twitter accounts. And so I, I, know, I, know what, I know of what I speak. And we must be different. If all we're going to do is mock and insult, then we are not being like our Savior. Our engagement has to be concerned with imitating Christ and showing the gospel more than it is winning arguments. Verse 32 then gives the put on in very clear language, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as per the model, God in Christ. A term for kindness, Jesus used it in Luke 6.35. He said, God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Ephesians 2.7, God saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So when he uses this word kindness, the foundation he's already given us is, this is something I have shown to you even when you didn't deserve it. I have shown mercy to you. You didn't initiate and do something that then said, okay, I'll show you kindness now. God in his kindness just extended to us what we, what we didn't deserve. And he showed us mercy. And so the kindness you and I are called rests on that same undeserved kindness we've received from God. The root word for kindness also has the idea of something that's useful. So it's not, when he says kindness here, it's not just reactionary speech, the argument, the, the moment of conflict where we get in trouble. But when he talks about usefulness, kindness also means proactively speaking words to help those who hurt. It is seeing those who are in need and those who are broken and those who are suffering. And it is, it is proactively speaking into their life with kindness and grace. Just as God initiated kindness toward us, so our speech should be reaching out to those who are broken and weary. And then tenderheartedness. The Greek word for tenderheartedness, it's actually the Greek, when they talked about the feelings, they almost always talked about the bowels. And that's really what the word talks about. It's sort of this gut feeling in the bowels. We make it sound nice, tenderhearted, because we think of the heart, right, as that organ as sort of resembling the center of emotions. They understood it more as the churning that goes on inside of you, which we've all experienced at one time or another, that sort of internal stuff. So tenderhearted. Peter uses it. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter, like Paul now, gives the contrast. Here's, what I, here's the opposite of that. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. When you're on the verge of a hard conversation with someone who may may have sinned against you or is not speaking kindly to you or is not treating you well. Being tender-hearted means resisting the temptation to focus on how wrong they are and getting even with them. Being tender-hearted means trying to understand. Is there something they're saying I need to hear? Is there some insight that they have? Is there something they've observed here that, that maybe I am just racing over in my determination to, to clear myself? And, and to uphold myself. If I perceive that you've mistreated me, the tender-hearted approach is not to talk about you and tell everyone how you've mistreated me. The tender-hearted approach is to come to you in love and speak the truth gently and to hold accusations loosely. I, I, I think as believers in Jesus Christ, especially as we interact with one another, we are really called to take a posture that says, you said this, this is what it sounded like. This is what I felt. Was that, is that what you meant? Love hopes for what's best. And so if we're going to be tenderhearted, we're, going to be, we're desiring to make that relationship whole. And so even in that moment when we feel like we've been wronged, we can still hold that accusation truthfully but loosely instead of coming at them full bore and saying, is there more to this? Is there something going on here? Because this is, this is the way it came across. And maybe you didn't even intend that. Don't we want people to do that for us? To just give us the benefit of the doubt that, yeah, you're right. I did say something stupid, and I wasn't even thinking of that at the moment. We want that. And I think that's what tenderheartedness, it's that giving of the benefit of the doubt. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, tenderhearted is an appeal for us to become understanding, compassionate, and loving. The person who lacks those things is probably not going to do well at gracious communication.
just say this as we wrap up. Keep in mind, there's this already, not yet. We are in a marvelous place as believers in Jesus Christ. God has already, if you are trusting in Christ, he has already made you a new creature. He has already saved you, putting off the old and putting on the new, and now we're called to live that out. It is not going to happen instantaneous, but it will be deliberate. It will take slowing down on our part and thinking about what, the, what we need to say at that point. That's most helpful. If, if my go-to... In my disagreement with you, my disagreement with my boss, my disagreement with my spouse, my disagreement with my child, if my go-to thought inside is, hmm, the reason that you're still arguing with me is because you apparently don't understand what I'm saying. Because if you understood what I was saying, we wouldn't be arguing because you'd know I was right. If that's your go-to, I speak from personal experience in my own heart, if that's your go-to, my wife can confirm that, if that's your go-to, You've lost already. If the attitude going into it is, I don't know why you're still arguing because you're just not hearing me because I know I'm right. Because we are called to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Let's pray together. We thank you for the power of the gospel to change us, Lord. We thank you that the gospel is real, that it takes lives that are broken, marriages that struggle, relationships that are shattered, and by the power of the gospel allows for a transformation through Christ that enables us to, to minister peace and tenderheartedness and kindness and grace. Thank you that the power of the gospel rests in our Savior, Jesus Christ. These are not simply behavioral techniques you've given. These are truths modeled by Jesus. The one who stood before crowds after healing the sick and raising the dead and feeding and, and serving and giving of everything to the point that he hung on the cross and people still mocked and insulted and even in those moments, he longed for them to come to a knowledge of the truth and to find sweet forgiveness through the gospel. Thank you that it is that living example that is now at work in our lives through your spirit, changing us and transforming us so that we, when we are in situations that generally are far less and anything close to what our Savior experienced, that we too can return with kindness and purpose, desiring to serve in those moments with tenderheartedness. Thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of the gospel. If there's anyone here who's not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, would today be the day that you would open their eyes to see the glories of a Savior who came and gave his life, his perfect life, as a ransom for sinners, that he might offer to us forgiveness and eternal life. Help us now to apply these things as we strive, even this afternoon, to put off old ways and put on new. Thank you for the working of your Spirit within us to convict, to renew, to show us again the beauty of our Savior. Help us to be like him. In his name we pray. Amen.